News Hounds from Queen City Nerve is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. And welcome to Queen City Nerve's News Hounds Podcast. This is episode eight. And I am here, as usual, with Justin LaFrancois, my co-host, and we're just pouring up some uh, some whiskey straight just, up today. Yeah, I'm not making anything. We got the dickle going. Yeah. You sounded like you were sick when you were on the phone yesterday, though you don't sound sick today. I'm coming down. Yeah. So I was going to just make you drink straight whiskey, uh, <clears throat> and then I also just didn't feel like... I'm at, I'm at the tail end of something yeah. now as we move into the new year. So here, here's some George Dickel rye whiskey. There we go. And just drink it. And today as our guest, uh, we have Sarah D'Elia of WFAE, Charlotte's local NPR affiliate, uh, host of The List and She Says Podcasts. What's going on, Sarah? Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And just for those who keep track of this sort of thing, Sarah's not drinking with us today. Um and it's just me and Justin just sipping it up yeah. in the podcast <laughs> like studio. We do. But um, the reason we have Sarah on today, other than the fact that she's just you know a friend and, and one of my favorite journalists in the city, and just does great reporting all around, she uh, recently released right at the beginning of December, I believe it was December first, mm-hmm. was the first episode of the List, which is a four part series about the Charlotte Diocese releasing a list of credibly accused clergy members who have been credibly accused of sexual assault? Abuse of minors. Abuse of minors. Mm-hmm. Um, give me a quick rundown, I guess, since you would be better at that than me. Just give me a quick <laughs> rundown of the list, uh, what the podcast is about. Sure. So uh, there were, earlier this year, the the bishop of the Charlotte Diocese, Peter Jugas, came out with a statement that said that after talking to survivors of sexual abuse, they were finally going to do what most dioceses in the country have done, which is to release a list of credibly accused clergy. So that can that's not just priests, that's anyone, an ordained member of the Catholic Church. Um, and and just kind of put it out there for everyone to see, you know, the history of people who have been credibly accused of sexual abuse. So if you have listened to my other podcast, She Says, um, which is about following uh, a survivor of sexual assault, navigate the criminal justice system, interacting with police, the district attorney's office, that kind of thing, um, you'll know that I'm very interested in the process of things. Right. And, and, and that how... is an amazing podcast. If you haven't Thanks. listened to it, go back to it. But go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. And um, so I'm really interested in, in the process of things and how things are reviewed and who gets to make decisions and why they're the person that gets to make the decision. So we had a lot of questions about how this list was going to be made. Why now? Uh, mm-hmm. Previously, the diocese has said through a spokesperson that they that used to be employed by, through the diocese that they weren't convinced that this was something that needed to be done, that it wasn't necessarily helpful for a survivor's healing. So we set out to do this four-part series with the intention of coming back and doing more episodes now that the list is out. Um, to just kind of ask those questions. And we didn't get, we got some answers. Right. But not as many answers as I, you know, as a journalist would hope for. But I think also that in and of itself, when you don't get a lot of answers, is sometimes Mm -hmm. the answer. Right. And that's sort of what I wanted to touch on um, that Justin and I were discussing earlier as far as what, what would you say? So as an update, the podcast came out early December and then just this week, December 28th, I believe it was, they released this list that they've been sort of teasing for a long or for months. 
Um, what are some of the big answers that you got out of that list that you sort of, as you say in the podcast, you list a couple of questions that won't be answered until the list comes out. What, what are your thoughts now that the list has been released? It's interesting because I've looked at a lot of other lists that other dioceses have released. I've looked all over the country, and sometimes they are literally just a list of names, nothing else. And sometimes they have a whole profile of somebody that you can click on and what they've been accused of and when that happened and the full assignment histories and photos. And the Charlotte Diocese kind of did something in between. It was more than I think a lot of people, a lot of experts that I've spoken to thought that there would be, like their actual photos, there's some information about the alleged abuse. Um, But then there are some things that's really interesting how they chose to display this information. So it's not just one list. They have these kind of other tabs, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. Yeah, quick uh, rundown of what you're referring to. There's 14 clergy members that had been accused between 72 and I don't know when the latest accusation was. Um, None before 2002, I don't think. Um, But so those are the 14 that were credibly accused while the Charlotte Diocese was up and running, I guess you could say. Right. There were six in Western North Carolina that occurred before Charlotte Diocese was a thing, and it was part of Raleigh Diocese back then. For a little more context, just quickly, uh, Charlotte Diocese right now is 43 counties, 48? It's it's about... It's It's 40-something counties, mostly in Western North Carolina, from here to Western North Carolina. And then there were 23 names of people who had worked in Charlotte area in those 48 counties, or 40-some counties, and but had been accused of, had their allegations took place elsewhere. Right. right. So so this other separate category, which I was surprised to see that they chose to not include them on their list because mm-hmm. the whole time that we've been asking them this question, one thing that they've said repeatedly is that anyone who has a credible ex- accusation against them, that's credible, no matter where it was, even if the abuse didn't happen in the Charlotte Diocese, which includes the Western portion of the state, they will be on this list. And instead, there's this kind of third tab that you can click on that says accused elsewhere. So I don't know. I don't feel like... Do you think that takes away from this seriousness? Do you think that separating them into a different list makes it look as if they're not necessarily as serious as what's happening on the other list? I haven't seen this separate category in any other diocese Mm -hmm. list that I've looked at. I'm not saying it doesn't, no other diocese has done that. I just haven't seen it. And I think I haven't had the opportunity to ask the diocese yet why they chose to do that. Um, To me, it, it does look like it is not counting in their number. I mean, they keep mentioning the 14. That's Mm -hmm. what we think about. But then, you know, you look at, um, and I've researched a lot of these priests who have been accused, and you look at some of these people who have been credibly accused in this elsewhere category, and, and a lot of them, some of them have been convicted of really heinous crimes right. against children. So, you know, okay, maybe that didn't happen in the Charlotte Diocese, but di- how? what was the investigation that they went into to look at if some of these people who have convictions, mm-hmm. especially did have any kind of, you know, accusations in Charlotte. Maybe they weren't known at the time, but since other people, I mean, those are people who have been on other people's lists. Absolutely. You know. They are predators, and uh, accused predators, I guess. So, you know, what did the diocese in Charlotte do or didn't do to look into those people instead of just putting them in this other category? My hope is that 
they also investigated them and went back and maybe listened and interviewed those other dioceses where they were found to have credible accusations against them. But I don't know that they did that. Right. Yeah. And I was... I was scared of that diocese is plural. I wasn't sure if that yeah. was the right way to go about it. A lot it. of people... Uh, Diocese. Diocese, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, the, according to the Charlotte Diocese, uh, it's dioceses is gotcha. the plural. But a lot of people... The most emails I got that were negative were how I pronounced right. dioceses, <laughs> which is funny. Well, so to touch back on why they could have made that third tab, I didn't... I didn't think it was all that strange when I saw it. I just saw it as a way for them to break up the information for me. Like, I I kind of saw it as like so. I mean, generally they're not convicted until probably well after they've been done clergying, whatever mm-hmm. the verb is, and uh, and so that's probably why there was no like investigation on the accusations uh, that they had on the that they had on them in the past from somewhere else because. Uh, I don't remember who was saying it on your podcast, but generally the diocese would um, transfer Mm -hmm. people to avoid, you know, Mm -hmm. legal issues like that and stuff. So I kind of saw it as a way to like call them out also be like, oh yeah, and this motherfucker too, but it wasn't here. It was up there. Mm. So I I didn't, I didn't see that as a negative thing at all. It was just like, all right, so thanks for breaking it out for me. I do. I agree with you when I was originally looking at it. I think that's a, good way to do it in the website to make it more navigable but at the same time also like you just said i've seen the number 14 repeated more than any number in headlines we all know as journalists that people usually only read the headlines right. you, i've heard the number 14 most often and that's a way to downplay it when it's really what 43 if you put together all three lists Right. So that's an interesting. And then, yeah, yeah the, the separate category, because as you mentioned, Ryan, mm. so originally the entire state was under the jurisdiction of the Raleigh Diocese in the 1972. There's, I guess, enough Catholics in the state of North Carolina to justify another diocese. So they split um, and kind of eastern, western portions of the state. But yeah, so there are, I think, you, I think there are six names on that list, um, the pre-1972 list, that if those... If that abuse had happened today, that would be considered the Charlotte Diocese. It wouldn't be considered the Raleigh Diocese. So I think that's just, you know, as long as people understand that, you know, I guess that it's, it was interesting to see that they separated them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it is, I think, an interesting point that if that happened today, that wouldn't be the Raleigh Diocese. That'd be Charlotte Diocese. And I was reading... Uh, earlier today about a report from AP, from Associated Press, early, or last week, mm. that went into, it didn't go into this list, because this it came out right before this list had actually come out, but it had gone into about 900 cases that they found themselves within this analysis of different lists, because as you, I think we mentioned earlier in this podcast, I'm going to get your podcast mixed up with mine, just because I've been listening to it all day, mm-hmm. but um, I believe you already mentioned how Tons of other cities are doing these lists. We're actually one of the last ones, and I want to talk about yeah, that there was a little a, bit further. There was 146 that... Yeah, so right. now we're so 147. What? Right. Oh, so there's still... You said there were 170 total in the country? I believe so. Yeah, yeah it's like 178, I think oh, okay. so. Yeah. So, I thought we'd have been close to the end, so right, yeah. we weren't the last. Especially since we, were, we were not the last, but we right. were among yeah. so, the last. Very progressive. And... So that being said, these, these, this analysis went into all those different reports, um, or at least most of them, all those different lists, I mean, and found 900 cases where uh, f- clergy members 
had been incredibly accused in the past, but weren't included for whatever reason, be it because some silly rule where they're already deceased and they only have one allegation, then they weren't included on the list, or they some people didn't include people who had been caught with child pornography because they didn't maybe think that was serious enough. I don't know. Um, do you in in your reporting and speaking with people, and I, I I understand that this has only been out for three days now, and I don't know how much you've been able to go into follow up mode, but in your experience, do you feel like there are people out there saying, I don't trust that this list is enough or this list is inclus inclusive? Yeah. I mean, I think they're incomplete is the word right, that a right. lot That's of people. Yeah. So like um, the day that it came out, it, like which was two two days before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, News dump in the yes, major way. That, that is what, yes, the news dump zone, mm -hmm. I think, is yeah. the area we were in. Um, so they, uh, you know, but the snap. So there's. The uh, it's an abuse survivor network snap, and there are national or there are local chapters, and we have a chapter in Charlotte. And um, you know they released a press release right away and said, I believe they said that there were like four or five people that they felt like, in their opinion, were should have been on this list that weren't included. And then um, BishopAccountability.org, which is a watchdog group in Massachusetts, that they track so much of this information and they wait and analyze lists that come out. Um, and then they do their own lists. Um, and they say, at least in their opinion, nine people should have been included that aren't on in that In Charlotte, list specifically. That have served mm -hmm. in the Charlotte Diocese at one okay. point, yeah. So um, now it is kind of looking at who is on the list that they published and who I've come across in lawsuits or talking to other people or other mm -hmm. survivors who feel like the list is incomplete. Right. Um, that's sort of where I am. But, yeah, I mean, that... Definitely, you know, lawyers I've talked to that represent um, abuse survivors, they said that it was an incomplete list. So I think there are a lot of people that that don't feel like this is it. And to the diocese's credit, I mean, they have said that, you know, should more information come, right? you know, it's, it's kind of, I don't know if they would say a living document, but mm -hmm. it's definitely can be added to. Right. So. And I know two of the folks that you had um, <clears throat> reported on pretty in depth, uh, who had both been convicted, were included in this list. Right. Did those nine that Snap had called called out is the wrong word, but Snap had said should have been included. Did they print their names? Did Snap print their names publicly? So Snap said like they said five, and they oh. um, there were yeah they did. I don't remember all of them, but mm -hmm. there one was. Um, Monsignor West, mm -hmm. who Mo West, who was who used to be second in command of the diocese, and uh, earlier this, well, earlier last year, I guess since it's 2020, right. um, these accusations had come forward that he had touched um, some adult students, mm -hmm. um, and then those accusations were found to be credible, and a lot of people have been like, well, why isn't he on the list? And well allegedly he abused people who were adults, so mm -hmm. he's not going to be on this list. Gotcha. But then I think the question should be like, well, okay, if they're not going to be on this list, yes, the Catholic News Herald does is supposed to publish these accusations as they come to light and are found credible or not, um, but there is not, there's not like a list where you can see you know, who abused. Other sexual assault yeah, yeah. allegations. You would think that a Catholic church would just keep a, a naughty list of right. all the people who have sinned in the name of God. I guess that's what's... Uh... Oh, well, yeah. Just even broader than sexual assault, you mean. Just all of it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. They do. <laughs> they just don't make it public, I'm sure. You know, like the sheriff's department's arrest records. You know, they got right. everything. It's not exactly. just rape. 
Oh, they know. And that's another thing because I this I don't want to get into conspiracy theory by any means. Um, but just the thing that always hang that I'm always hung up on is this complete uh, uh, complete uh, insistence that since 2002 or seven right. two, two. when those new policies were put in place to protect children and make a more of a zero uh, tolerance sort of thing and, and always reporting these sort of things that they're very insisting that everything is dropped off mm-hmm. and nothing is happening. And I just find that so hard to believe. Um, I don't really have a question and about then, that. And then, but, but, but so if that's true, if it dropped off in 2002... Uh, What's with the boom in the seventies? What what happened right. in the seventies that just made it pop? Mm-hmm. Like the, they have the charts right on the website. The yeah, is just, it mm-hmm. seems like, and maybe it is one of those um, acid, a culture of acceptability where you or not even acceptability but cover ups to where you know you're gonna not really face any accountability for this sort yeah. of action. Things, I guess, just weren't as. Uh, I mean, it probably wasn't. At, I mean, of course, it was terrible and frowned upon back then. You know, if you right. went to prison for it, you could still get shanked. But, <laughs> but it was you know, it probably wasn't as unacceptable, wasn't as frowned upon. No, that's stupid. What I'm saying well, is stupid. <laughs> I mean, what I'm saying is, who knows? Yeah, the, I think the culture of the cover up was just so much stronger there, and, and probably easier to do. And like you mentioned earlier, uh, Sarah reported on a lot of the moving around of people. They they really made specific efforts, not even just in Charlotte, but countrywide to move people around and, and sort of uh, dodge accountability in, right. in that sort of way. Yeah, I mean, the what happened in 2002 was the Boston Globe Spotlight investigative team like mm-hmm. basically just uncovered how rampant this was throughout the country, especially in Boston at the time. And they did something, they made their own assignment histories, which is really tedious and takes a lot of time, where the Catholic Church releases basically like these directories every year, and it says the name of the priest, where what their assignment was that year, and where they worked. And then they went through and just did like the history of all these priests and saw how, you know, this priest was on sick leave like mm-hmm. every other year, or got moved here, got moved here, got moved there. Like, what does that mean? And so when this all got uncovered in 2002, the Charter for the Protection of uh, Children and Young People, I believe that's what it's called, um, it, that got released, and that was the protocols that kind of switch. But I think the important thing to n- think about when we talk about like this abuse not happening as much or or not at all, the Charlotte Diocese would like to say, is that you know how long does it take survivors to come forward right, with their that, stories, right? Yeah. So we're hearing from people that haven't felt comfortable talking about their abuse and trauma from the 80s and the 90s and they're just coming forward today so if you're being abused today well maybe we're not going to hear from you till like 2020 2030 2040 you know i think that's really important to think about when you're reporting on trauma and and talking to survivors that's so fucking true because i learned something uh today when i was listening to your podcast as well that you have until the age of 28 to report a sexual assault against you if it happened to you while you were a minor. Yeah, and that law and just went just, into effect. And right? they just raised that age, right? Yeah, from it was twenty one to twenty one. Yeah, right. And then so if we're just hearing now about things that happened in the eighties, which puts those people up in their forties and fifties. Yeah. And you know, so I think that's a little fucking ridiculous for a law to put an age limit on when you're allowed to overcome your trauma to talk about it. So that that. Right. It's a yeah. Fucked up aspect. So you're absolutely right. It's probably still just as rampant, maybe. Yeah. 
and just more technologically advanced. And, you know, the some states don't have a statute of limitations for civil filing a civil case like that. We happen so to. So that's just North Carolina. That's okay. just North Carolina. Yeah, some of some states don't have a statute of limitations. There's no criminal statute of limitations for a felony. Um, but, you know, if you're coming forward 40 years after you were abused, you know, is are there any witnesses? Is the priest sure, alive yeah. or dead? Is there any DNA evidence? It's it's a really ha- uh, tall hill to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, but it was interesting because I talked to a lot of law, a few lawmakers as that legislation was getting pushed forward. And I know that the age, they wanted that age to be higher, but it just kept mm-hmm. getting whittled down, whittled who, down. Who, yeah, who's What's whittling the argument? it down? Yeah, <laughs> what? Yeah. So what I've heard... Um, when I was doing some research about this is that there was a fear among some lawmakers that, you know, lawsuits would come out of the woodwork mm-hmm. and that, you know, I think spiteful, also, like spiteful lawsuits you know, or people that are, you know, seeking money, that kind of thing. Right. And, and, are lying about the abuse. That's always okay. the like. And so I talked to Josh Stein about that, the attorney general of North Carolina, just to say like, hey, I've heard anecdotally sort of this this argument that people throw out um, for not for low, having a lower age with statute of limitations. And he was just like, do some people make up lies about, you know, fraud or anything? He's like, yeah. sure. But like the majority of people that are coming forward because it's really not an easy thing if you've, um, you know, I've covered rape trials before, and it, there, it is is something to be seen to, you know, have a somebody who's alleging that these really horrible crimes happened to them, to think that, you know, are they making that up as they're getting grilled by this this um, defense attorney? Mm-hmm. Like that's not my place to say as a journalist whether, but you see, you can see as a journalist just the process um, that they're going through and the questioning that they're going through. It doesn't appear to be a very easy thing. Um, so, you know, Josh Stein's point was basically like, yeah, sir, they're going to be false things that come forward, but the majority of people don't put themselves through that just to get money. Absolutely. And Um, that's, I thought that was a really great point by him. And it's something to keep in mind throughout this recent Me Too movement that we've seen and things like that, where it's, of course, there will always be the misnomers of people who lie. Absolutely. And that's not a way to paint, to brush off Right. Victims. Um, definitely. So what, what what are you what questions are you trying to answer now? I know you had already mentioned and you mentioned in passing earlier in this podcast, but you said it at the end of your your podcast that you, your plan is now to that the list is out to continue making podcasts, plural. Yeah. Hopefully. OK. Yeah. So yeah. What, do, what do you want to. What do you want to look for? And you don't have to give up the ghost oh, or no. anything, but oh yeah, because uh, tell us everything so the that list... they don't have to listen to yours. <laughs> okay, great. No, the the list just in four parts. Like that was a, that was a great thing to just sit there yeah. and listen to all day. That was a really good podcast. Oh, thanks. Very informative. Thanks. Very very well produced. Very uh, very reporty. Thanks, very reporty. Thank you. Thank no, you. It's, it's That's my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think. So there were a lot of frustrations with making this podcast because, you know, the diocese doesn't have a spokesperson right now. Mm -hmm. You're going, you're doing a lot of emails. You're trying to be fair. I mean, that's really important to me, um, especially, you know, like 
when we mentioned she says and um, a lot of that involved police and you know it was really important and what I told the diocese from the start of this was that we want you to feel like you may not like some of the things you hear they may be hard to hear but we don't want you to feel like you've been treated unfairly Mm -hmm. Um, and so multiple times they were invited to the table and they just declined we even had a Charlotte Talks episode um, and we asked them to be on and they cited scheduling reasons for not coming on. So that was, you know, hard when you're trying to be as fair and as balanced as you possibly can telling a sensitive story like this or any story. So since the list has come out, you know, I've heard from different survivors that I haven't, um, I didn't make contact okay. with. Um, so I'm really interested in, in, um, hearing more of their stories. Um, I am like now that, um, the independent investigative firm who said they would talk to me and then talk to the diocese and then called me back and said, oh, it's not a good oh, idea right. that we talk to you anymore. Um, they were apparently really involved in looking at these old historic files. I'd really like to see if the process, now that the process is done, maybe maybe you'd like to talk to me about what that process was. Um, so, you know, and I'd really would like to sit down and talk to the diocese about how they chose to make the list the way way that they did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, other dioceses after lists have come out have formed like, um, six dioceses in California formed, came together and formed a victim's compensation fund. Um, they also, um, one of the dioceses out in California, after they released their list, the bishop went to, he had like eight listening sessions and just went to different churches and invited the public to come and Mm -hmm. just be like, how do we solve this problem? Like we are obviously are not doing a good job. What are your ideas? What are your suggestions? I think that's really brave. You know, right. anytime a big um, organization like that um, puts themselves out like that, it's vulnerable to be that way. So, you know, I'm interested to see what the diocese's next steps are. I'm interested to see if, you know, they are interested in being more open with the media if they do hire a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Um how do you not so, hire a spokesperson before releasing that list? Yeah, and they, <laughs> they did hire, um, they did work with a local PR firm, but it wasn't, that wasn't who I was emailing to try and get an, e- an interview, no, yeah. you know, so, yeah. I don't, I don't like talking to PR people. I don't like anyone talking to anyone who's, whose job it is to talk to me. Um, <laughs> well, I, then how do you think, how, how do you think when, how do you think people feel when you talk to them? I don't. I don't know where to go with that. It's your job to talk to people too. You're just not pitching. You're asking questions. No, the job of a PR person is to spin something though, in their own, in their own way that benefits the people who are paying them money. So it okay. doesn't makes them less valuable. Okay. I feel like. Okay. Um, but where was I going to go with that? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I'm just personally curious. Uh, just because you've done these great long form sort of in depth, uh, and she says, I mean, you've spent over a year on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you sort of cut up that time or, or balance that time? Because I, I always I see you reporting on stuff. That's where we met, is sort of like covering crime and courts and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you sort of balance that time at WFAE to be doing your the daily stuff that they have responsibilities or they have a your daily responsibilities as, and and then these long form projects. Yeah. That's, I think the constant struggle because, you know, we're not a huge newsroom. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it is sort of like, you know, I do have a very supportive editor and, um, and support within the station and the management that believes in the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And that's really helpful. Um, but I think it also, you know, this, 
why we ended up putting the list in the She Says podcast feed Mm -hmm. is because at the time, I I believe there was still like over 7,000 people still subscribed to She Says, which is like pretty impressive for a pod. You know, we haven't made a new She Says episode in about a year with Linda's story. So the fact that people are just, you know, they clearly want to hear this type of work and it means something to them. Um, I think that's helpful when you're pitching, doing another long-term project that's going to take you out of the daily news cycle. But yeah, it is just a constant, you know, if there's breaking news or something big is happening, like just dropping what you're doing and and helping fill in. Um, But I also think, I mean, to do this type of work, you have to be focused on it and you have to have the time to do it because Mm -hmm. it's, you know, each episode I made of the list, like people joked, I looked like a paralegal because each episode has a binder and Mm -hmm. it has lawsuits in it. It has documents and every, my scripts are all footnoted too. So I can sleep at night to know like, how do I know that this is true? Okay. That was from interview. Yeah. Yeah. That I did six months ago with this person that I only got to talk to once, you know, like, so it is really time consuming, but like, if you put in the work and you get the time to do it, it's work worth doing for right, sure. Absolutely. Um, but it doesn't happen overnight. And you're definitely one of the best at it here in Charlotte. Oh, um, if not around the country, I just don't listen to a lot of local <laughs> podcasts in other cities. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, we appreciate you, and, and it's a very important work. We're going to take a little bit of break here and then come back and talk about some other local news topics. Uh, we are here with Sarah D'Elia. Host of She Says in the List, where they c- where can people find it? So you can find it anywhere that you find uh, your podcasts on Apple, or you can go to wfae.org slash the list. All right, cool. And we're going to take a quick word from QCPN, Queen City Podcast Network, and then we'll be back. How long do runners need to stretch before hitting the road? This is a 60-second training tip powered by OrthoCarolina. Stretching muscles while the body is at rest can lengthen muscles and help runners improve performance, reduce injuries, and recover from a tough run faster. But how long should a good stretch last? The simple answer is 30 seconds. This allows your cold muscles to relax and be ready for work. Taking the time to stretch properly is critical, especially if you're coming back from an injury. Something to note though, stretching a muscle group for longer than 30 seconds can actually decrease your speed and hurt your performance. In addition to a good pre-run stretch, spend some time after your run and stretch the same muscle groups for 30 seconds as well. This has been your 60-second training tip powered by OrthoCarolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more training tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. And we're back on episode eight of Queen City Nerves News Hounds podcast. I'm here with Justin LaFrancois, my co-host, Hello. and our guest today, Sarah D'Elia, hey. WFAE reporter, host of She Says podcast, and most recently, The List podcast, uh, which we just spoke about. If you're just coming in now, that's weird because it's a podcast, <laughs> and I'm not sure how you did that. But we're going to change subjects a little bit and talk about a few things happening locally this week and last, since we last spoke. Um, and then just some news that came out today that I just feel like feel the need to bring up because of all the times that our former publication reporting on this for years and years on end. 
Uh, it seems like we're one step closer to bringing the coal ash saga to an end in the Charlotte area and North Carolina as a whole. Uh, environmental groups, state regulators, and Duke Energy came to an agreement today about permanently closing and moving coal ash out of the basins where they are currently. Um, that's about... 31. It's about 80 million tons of ash from nine sites, and that's in six different places, some of those being right there on our Catawba River Basin where we get our water from here in Charlotte. This has been happening forever, but I think just the main point here being that Duke had already agreed to close down their coal ash plants and start transitioning away from that. However, where people were sort of disagreeing was the idea that they just wanted to put a cap on it, just sort of line it, put a cap on it, and say, we're just going to leave this here. Good luck, everybody. And then today they have finally agreed to like move a time it. Capsule. Right, exactly. It's just a toxic time capsule, band name. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I don't really have any questions about this, but it's going to be the largest coal ash cleanup in U.S. history. And guess who's going to guess who's going to be forced to pay for it because of a monopoly? The taxpayers. All, no, well. Residents in general, because we have to use Duke Energy, and they're probably just oh, going to yeah, raise yeah, the yeah. rates. Oh yeah. Um, I feel like there were some civil suits going on about whether they were allowed to use rate increases to pay for their cleanup. Um, I don't know the details of how those have turned out, or they might still be going on. But it just seems sort of uh, inevitable. Yeah, it only makes sense. Yeah, that if they need to spend more money, they're not going to take it out of their Lynn Goods bonus. They're going <laughs> to. They're going to raise the rates and, and pay for it that way. But it's still a, a comforting thing to know. I don't know. There, I think there's been three or four river keepers since this whole thing began um, about a decade ago, if not more. And But I always sort of look to them as Catawba the River Keeper. Of the river. Yeah, exactly. They, they are as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their, their, their majestic name implies they are just sort of... <laughs> I don't ever get a political agenda like they're trying to be extremists over there at Catawba Riverkeeper. Like, these people are just there to do their job, and they're going to tell you the science of it from the get-go. And mm -hmm. they're always, they seem to be very happy with today's um, news. So that's an exciting step forward as far as cleaning up our riverways because there's people who fish right there on the, the beach of these basins. And... Elevator J even probably. Elevator J probably eats these fish all the time, and we got to keep Elevator J strong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but moving on, speaking of Charlotte rappers, you like that segue, <laughs> um, to a news story that sort of a lot of people were talking about last week, but I think it has broader implications just about whether it be decriminalization of marijuana to harassment to where police where police's priorities, any number of ways you could take this. Uh, baby, Jonathan Kirk, Charlotte rapper who blew up last year um, and probably had the biggest year in rap of anyone in the country, but is a Charlotte native. Um, he was detained on December 20th, I want to say, last Monday. And that will still be... Well, he was... Oh, yeah, no, you're right. He was just detained. I don't right. think he was ever mm -hmm. placed under he, arrest. He had a toy right. drive during the day at the Bowplex um, that turned into a concert that he was doing as a makeup for one that he had missed because of flight problems in December 6th. Um, and 
as he pulled back in the parking lot to attend to his own concert, to perform at his own concert. Apparently, according to police, they smelled weed in his car, waited till he went inside, sort of looked around in his flashlight in his car, saw some weed laying out in plain view, waited till he came out, tried to confront him about it. They say that he didn't... Um, that he resisted arrest by walking away and refusing to talk to them, which they also called it voluntary contact, which you can't really resist. I mean, I don't, I'd like to hear the explanation of how that makes sense. He also said that he did everything but resist. Um, he's been promising these videos of the whole entire interaction that we haven't seen yet. But I just think the reason this became such a news thing is, is it's just a, he's claiming that every time he comes to Charlotte, regardless of what he's doing, shooting a video or performing that he just immediately gets harassed by CMPD. He has a history in this uh, city, just as far as a lot of people are familiar with the Huntersville incident in which somebody ran up on him with a gun um, some years ago, and he was with his children, and he defended himself and shot and killed the man and was not charged with anything other some than... Some years ago. Wasn't that just like a year and a half ago? No, no. It was I mean, maybe three or four, but definitely not a year and a half. Minimum two. But anyway... Um, he, so yeah, so the police are definitely familiar with him, aware of him, but I just, it, it turned out to be a really bad look for CMPD um, on all accounts. Um, and I, I, of course it was, because yeah. you don't have to look at some stupid fucking video that, that his friends took while he was getting arrested to have seen the video that was on his Instagram story of the cops looking through his fucking window with the flashlights, and as soon as somebody says something, they all scatter like scare little fucking mice. Right, they are. Nobody who smells weed, who walks up to a car, who's policing, doing their fucking job, looking through a window when they get busted doing their job is going to go, who? Right. Oh, no. Mm-mm. Oop. No. Absolutely not. They were out. They were definitely were targeting him, and right. that's what he's saying. Is he feels like he's being targeted? And it's one of those things where, as he mentioned, there was a murder that night on North Tron Street. There was a lot of plenty of real crime going on. In the yeah, city. But those those cops were working that coliseum anyway. Right. Yeah, and they were matter. on duty police. But how many cops did they have? Like seven. And how many people rolled in there with their cars smelling like weed? All. They of them? were specifically looking at the baby, and it, and like I said, and I agree with you that that. His point about, oh, there's a murder here and your murder rates are this and that, that's a different situation because they're going to hire police to work there. But it's still just a bad look in general when you have that happening not very far away right there in North Tryon. Yeah, of course. Especially because the uh, baby is internationally known. So right. when he talks shit about Charlotte, like that's just, it's gonna he's happen. talking yeah. shit about Charlotte to the world. And so CMPD is making themselves look like fucking assholes. Right. And, you know, nobody said they weren't to begin with. But but for real, like, you're just going to, you're just walking around the parking lot and you're like, oh, well, let's go see if the baby's car smells like weed. Wouldn't right. that be funny? And they're like, oh, shit, it does smell like weed. Let's arrest them for We're it. Gonna get a, and that's the thing. De- back from when Jennifer Roberts was mayor, there was a move to decriminalize marijuana, and that's why I'm curious about the whole detainment and thing. I mean, you've covered crime in the mm-hmm. city. Did it seem out of whack to bring someone in all the way to Mecklenburg County Jail? Well, I think it's interesting that he didn't end up getting arrested, because mm-hmm. if he did have marijuana on him, I mean, it's not legal in North Carolina, but then he got issued two, I believe, two citations. Right. So I'm... I, Two I'm, uniform citations. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm interested in how that happened. Um, 
I'm interested in was I know that he arrived in that car. Was it his car? Was he the one driving? Was, was he not the one driving? He was the passenger. In possession of weed, or was it in the car? Right. It was in the car, I believe, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. That's not in the press release. So that's what when I was I was talking to somebody about this when when it came out originally, and they were like, "Oh, well, it looks pretty slam dunk." It was, and I was like, "Well, I these are the questions I would have. Is it mm. his car?" Was it in his pocket? Was it on his person? Um, you know, how did, yeah, how did they get him down, the decision to take him downtown? What was that call? And I know CMPD right. has launched an internal investigation to see if they have, if the, the officers who took him downtown were following the protocol that they were supposed to. So I think it will be really important in 2020 to follow up on that story and see what the findings were of that internal investigation. Yeah, because yeah. the release just says that they they moved him to a safe location right. to conduct the investigation. Uh, the release That's does say that they the way... saw police, they saw the weed in the car in plain sight oh, well, without him in it. Well, either way, so yeah. it's still not on him. Possession exactly. Nine tenths and he, of the he wasn't law. even driving, so that's well, why. Nobody, what happened to the driver? Nobody's to know if he was ever driving the car, right? Um, because nobody was driving the car. It was an empty car in a parking mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they say that they moved him to a safe location, took him all the way downtown Fourth Street, and then on his uh, Instagram. Uh, TV video, they, he had a property bag and everything, so he was processed like he was arrested. Right. Now, if if there's a video of the situation where he got put in the car and taken away, I would just want to see if he was read his Miranda rights. Mm-hmm. And if he was read his Miranda rights, then why, like he said, was he being discharged through the wrong door? They have policies in place. Discharged through the wrong door and given a property bag and left with, a, with an intake wristband on. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just... And the release it doesn't really sound like protocol was followed. Oh no, all. absolutely. The release says something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing. Um, at one point, it was decided that he would not be arrested and he would be issued citations instead, which makes me think someone, whether it be Yolian Ortiz with the Public Information Office or someone who's younger and has their has their finger on that sort of pulse got wind of this and said, guys, what are you doing? This is going to be a bad look. Yeah, like, yeah, and that's when they said we offered him a ride wherever he wanted to go, and he said, no, So now, So now <laughs> this is obviously going to bring up a lot of conversations about decriminalization, as my inbox has told me uh, more than one time since the story came out. But, like, whoa, whoa, what's CMPD to gain from arresting somebody for right. carrying weed around? The, that was, was there is there is there a financial gain? What, what is it? The point of the decriminalization efforts was to say that if you get caught below a certain amount of weed, yeah, then you just issue right, a citation. I think and right now it's a half ounce or right. something. Yeah. But like I'm saying, like even if they were just targeting him for weed and he had more than a half ounce, like if they were all giddy with excitement, like oh right. we got him for weed, what's what's the benefit? Right. What, mm-hmm. That's a, that's a, does anybody know? That's a legitimate question. Money, money, I but, guess. But yeah. what? But money to who? Money from him, or money from yeah. the taxpayers to pay for? I just don't. All of it. Okay. <laughs> Arrest equal money, um, and then they can continue to ask just, for more officers. Just let the people smoke their marijuana. Yes. Um, Son of a bitch. Well, it'll be interesting. Like when you get a citation like that, do you have a court date that you? I or think do you with just, a, for sure. So uh, I think with a citation, you can just pay you it. Can just pay but it. But you right. can go to court you if can you go want. To court. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that will be interesting to see if he just pays it or if he mm-hmm. goes to court. Oh, that's it. Then we found where the <laughs> that's where the money comes yeah, from. It's the, the citation. Ticket. God yeah. damn it! Such an uh, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Sorry. Um, moving on to another saga of Charlotte that's been going on for some time and uh, seems to have taken a step towards the beginning of the end here um, is this week. I believe it was this week, right? Monday, yep. Tuesday? Yeah. There was finally the closure of a, the sale of the Excelsior Club. That was very passive language. Finally, the, the Excelsior Club has been sold yeah, we, to we all... Kenwood, which is a California-based firm. It plans to redevelop it. Um, after last year's announcement that it would become one of, what was it, 11? Yeah, 11. 11 most uh, endangered historic spots. People had hoped that maybe it could be renovated and, and reformed into, rebuilt into something. But it looks now, correct me if I'm wrong, I think they're going to build over it. Oh, yeah. Redevelop it into an entertainment venue, slash art gallery, slash restaurant, slash hotel. possible hotel, boutique hotel. Yeah. Um, slash... Museum of some sort. There's going to be a major part. Music hall. hall. Yeah. Um, But there is going to be a major part that the reason, I believe it was City Council gave 100,000, Mecklenburg County gave 100,000, and Foundation for the Carolina has pledged 50? No, the city gave 50, the county gave 50. Oh, okay. Foundations for the Carolina, uh, the Knight Foundation gave 50, and Foundation for the Carolinas gave 100. 100, So they got $250,000 total. So a lot of that funding came from promises that they're going to keep some sort of... They're going to try to develop this in a way that honors the Excelsior Club, uh, which if you don't which know, this still is... still means that they're going to just take the old one down. Right, exactly. They Former uh, site. Last I saw that said they're going to try to build at least a part of this business to look exactly like it or the as facade. much as possible. They yeah. want to keep the facade. Yeah. And for those who don't know, I know that I should, probably should have mentioned this at the top to give context, but this is a... Uh, Historically African-American club in Washington Heights, Beatty's Ford Corridor, that has been open since 1944 through the Jim Crow era, was a gathering place for black folks in Charlotte who didn't have many other places to go and be comfortable and be safe and and celebrate their own culture. James Brown has played there to, um, oh gosh, there's some, there's some jazz legends that I'm just drawing a blank on. There's been a, a ton of just iconic musicians who have come through and performed there over the, I think it was open for about 60 years before it shut down last. Um, and so, yeah, this this seems like it could have the potential. Everyone seems to be somewhat happy about it, even some of the folks who have been fighting for it to be saved. But it also seems like it has a potential for to be just a bad, like a harbinger of gentrification. Picture it. Right. White people walking down Beatty's Ford Road. Right. At night, even. And this could be the beginning of... It just depends. I, I would just wonder it's how they're going one. to... It yeah. only has to be cool enough to attract people to want to live close to it. Right. Exactly. And then the and surrounding lands will get bought up, right. and then you'll see a fucking apartment pop up on Beatty's Ford Road somewhere. And a brewery and a coffee shop. Yep, and that's all you need. And we've seen this. We've <laughs> written about plenty of it happening on the Tuckasegee Corridor, and, and mo- a lot of West Charlotte just... As the as the population expands, starts to move out further, then people are going to be looking for more and more places to live that are as close to uptown as possible. And some of the cities that, or some of the neighborhoods that saw white flight in the '60s, '70s, are now seeing the opposite take place. And and I could absolutely see that happening in Washington Heights, which is Charlotte's oldest black neighborhood. Um, and I think a big um, Brooklyn Village. Going where Brooklyn once sat in Second Ward, uh, we've done a, plenty of coverage of that. 
that looks like one of those where a lot of the residents or former residents of Brooklyn feel like their memory is not being honored. The there's no place for the type of people who used to live in in Brooklyn. They, it's going to be high end residential, high end retail stuff like that, and people feel left out of those plans. Um, and that's what I lo- that's what I want to see about Excelsior Club mm. because it's an important icon of Amer- of uh, Charlotte Charlotte's history in general. And I just hope to see that that gets honored in a I, way that's not just lip service. I, c- I could understand wanting to see it honored and whatnot, but I would just want to see something that helps incubate that neighborhood to right. where it's not developed and raised and everybody that's what pushed I mean. out. Yeah. Yeah. Not just but being a fancy boutique slash I'm sure place. I'm sure people will listen to this and be like, oh, this is all speculation. Like, oh, it is. Yeah. That's what, yeah, that's what it's, we're it's doing. The, it's the first step every time it's happened everywhere else. Right. Mm-hmm. And it'll just, you know, I was having a conversation the other day with a friend of mine because I was talking about this stuff and homelessness and shit like that, and I was going off on rants, and he was doing his uh, little Republican ranty jargon shit, and he was like, well... If you feel so strongly about it, then what's what's the solution? And I was like, I don't fucking know. I just right. I hope somebody comes up with one yeah. someday. <laughs> and maybe maybe Beatty's Ford Road will be the first one. Somebody comes up with a way to build some cool entertainment venue, bar lounge that caters to that neighborhood that doesn't push them out mm. right. and bring people in to overdo them. Well, that's the thing about gentrification is that there is no the 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 issue is so systemic and and starts so far back that there's there's no way to say oh well when people start moving in this neighborhood we're gonna do this right because yeah. the issue started a long time ago and that is the result of I mean now the result is that most people are renting and they're not owning and even yep. if you want to sell you can't be the one to um, benefit off selling that property because if you're renting stuff like that. That's one small part of it. Um, ten other issues surround it that are not just easily fixable. It takes long, long-term fixes. Like you see at the West Side Community Land Trust, people are trying to buy houses that yeah. stay in the neighborhood and stay with the people who have been there for generations. So see, that's that's a good solution. Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea. Yeah, and it's so difficult. They've been trying to do this for I'm sure. Yeah, because they don't like get five the... or six years, and they just got it's their just, first house. Yeah, it's one yeah. of those things where they're not getting enough support yet because people aren't fired up about mm. it enough. Right. Then when people get fired up about it, I'm sure that that'll become a huge popular thing where those grassroots organizations pop up all over the country and they just buy up houses in the neighborhoods that they're already in. Yeah. And then. Once people get fired up about it, those white people who have already moved to that neighborhood and displaced people are going to really start to post about it on social media. Social media will be a whole different thing by then. <laughs> you just look at it in your eyeballs and your yeah. contacts. <laughs> it's not posts, it's thoughts. Your thoughts will enter to other people's heads. Oh, great. Um, do you have any bear news for us? I do. I do. Sarah, do you have any thoughts before we go into a bear <laughs> rant? Uh, no, just that I got a phone call from the broker, um, Steve Robinson of the Excelsior club. And, uh, the only thing that I think I could add is that he, you know, was really excited about all the city support and, Mm -hmm. um, support from Charlotte. And I think that's ultimately what made the sale go through, which, um, you know, so, uh, he was really excited, understandably. And, um, like you said, Justin, I think there are a lot of people that have been in support of saving it, um, that are excited about it, but then there is sort of like a, Oh wait, what's next? What is it actually going to look like? I think Justin texted me yesterday 
said, imagine a lost and found where Excelsior was. Oh, yeah. Which is the danger. Mm. <laughs> um, but it does seem from all you It spoken, could be great. Right, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. It yeah. does it does seem from all um the reports that I've read and you've spoken with him and you might know better than me and I think this is sort of what you were just getting at but he doesn't seem like just an out of touch California dude who is um or wait. Are we talking you're about, talking the, about broker? the broker? The broker is yeah, different yeah. than the developer. Yeah. But it does seem like everyone involved has a sort of at the least a intentions. knowledge of the importance of this yeah. site. Cuz they already tried to buy it once this year. Yeah. Right. Same company. Sarah believe broke that story. WFAE did. Okay, I thought mm-hmm. that was you. I'm trying Same to give thing. you credit. It might, well, thank you. I'll take. I'm, I got the call New Year's Eve about the Excelsior Club actually getting sold. So yeah. that was nice. Nice. Yeah. Let's uh let's get some. I almost said very good news. <laughs> oh, uh, say it. This week to, in bears. Mm. This week in bears. Uh, so there's this bear named Eve. Uh, her name is Eve because she was found on Christmas Eve 2017 mm-hmm. in a dumpster with mange. And she only weighed 30 pounds, and it was the worst case of mange. The people that found her, I, uh, I don't think the people that found her were bear experts, but when the people <laughs> that found her handed her over to the bear experts, the mange was the worst case of mange they'd ever seen. She's almost completely naked. Mange is just sort her, of like, went, oh no. Yeah. Oh no! I was trying to picture what the Aww. worst case of mange would look like. That's very sad looking. It's just like a it's like a rhinoceros like a without a horn, like a, a hairless mole rat, but yeah. as a bear. Uh, Thirty pounds um, in desperate need of care, and then they moved her into a new home in Texas. Uh, and so they started taking care of her and whatnot. Uh, she was in rehab for two years, and they were calling they were calling her the Bear Bear. So clever. It's original. Yeah. She's named Eve because she was found on Christmas Eve. But uh, so she gained 130 pounds back. Now, an average adult female grizzly bear weighs 220 pounds. So this puts her at about 160. 160. So she's still 60 pounds underweight. And she Two grew. Two of my dogs. She grew <laughs> some of her fur back, but she doesn't have enough coat or skills to survive in the wild mm. or to survive interactions with other bears. So she has to live forever at the Cleveland Armory Black Beauty Ranch in Texas. But it's totally fine because it's spacious. And look at look at how much fun she's having there. Oh, she does. She's trotting. Yeah. Aww. And ironically, I also don't have enough coats or skills to survive in the wild. <laughs> yep. She gets acres of land to roam. Uh, she's got toys. This is a picture of her with more of her hair back. Mm-hmm. She still looks rabid and disgusting. Yeah. Um. Well, and congratulations yeah, so to Eve. Good for yeah. Eve. She gets to hang out with 800, well on her way back. 800 other animals. Nice. Cool. Just like Helen the blind bison. This is not like a bullshit zoo where they're just... It's not a zoo. It's a okay. ranch. Okay, good. It's like good. an animal sanctuary. I missed that word. I you don't, forgot what you called it. You don't You don't go here. We don't go here. Oh, it's yeah, a I place. I go. I ain't got connections. I mean, you can go wherever you want. <laughs> Uh, all right, awesome. Well, congratulations to wait, Eve. Wait, on wait. This New Year's. I forgot week. to say that she also lives with two other bears, retired traveling circus bears, uh, Tibor and Sammy. That's Tibor. It. Tibor. Tibor. T i b o r. That's it. Well, Sarah, we very cool. much appreciate you ha- uh, you coming on the podcast with us and chatting about yeah. this. Um, the podcast is great. It's called The List. Thanks. Go back and check out She Says, which is sort of under similar umbrella. It's almost like a spinoff, I would call it. I'm going to start that tomorrow. Yeah. Um, 
And we appreciate everybody listening. This has been Queen City Nerves News Hounds. We'll see you next time. <laughs>